0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. When we read passages like Romans 8, the golden chain that we looked at a few weeks ago, when we read passages... Like our lectionary reading in Ephesians 1, in love, he predestined us. When we hear about predestination and election, uh, these things can be surprising to us. The idea that salvation can be traced back before the foundation of the world to a choice that God made, not that I made, that seems remarkable. It seems challenging. But that would not have been a surprise or a challenge to the first audience of these epistles. No one receiving the epistles of the Ephesians or the epistles of the Romans reading this would have said, whoa, wait a second. Go back a little bit. Did he just say predestination? Did he just say God chooses a people for himself? That doesn't seem right. No one would have said that because they already knew it. Of course, God chooses a people for himself. That's what the whole Old Testament was about. There was nothing strange about this way of thinking about God, nothing unusual about talking about God in this way that God would elect or choose a people for himself, a people to save, that he would enter into covenant with these people over time. That was actually old hat. That was something very familiar to the original audience, that Jewish audience that had grown up steeped in this way of thinking about God, who had grown up thinking of themselves as the chosen people, chosen by God, set apart from all the other people of the world. Again, there's nothing new. This was present in every, every interval, every breath of the Old Testament, this way of thinking. That wasn't the shock. The surprise was not the idea of God's choosing. The surprise was discovering the nature of that chosen people. Because it turns out in the New Testament, in the Gospel, that understanding of who the chosen people are changes dramatically. God reveals a broadness, an inclusiveness to his plan that was not anticipated before, that would have been rejected before. But now, in Christ, he has revealed this new way of understanding the doctrine of chosenness, of election. A great mystery had been revealed. Paul says that mystery is that the Gentiles are included in God's plan of salvation. That the chosen race is not just ethnic Israel. It is not just the Jewish race, but also as is sung in Revelation chapter 5, people from every tribe and language and people and nation have been chosen by God to be his people. So, the New Testament builds on a common understanding, but it also develops. There are changes that take place. And those changes represent, for the people who first learned about them, quite a struggle. It was not easy to understand Uh, This new revelation, the the way God was changing their understanding of things. There was a series of struggles that play out in the New Testament that we see. The first is really fundamental. It's the struggle between uh, what is clean and what is unclean. Or to put it another way, it it is the struggle of the cleanness of the unclean. Remember in Acts chapter 10, Peter receives a vision where he is told to eat of unclean things. And as a pious and observant Jew, he refuses because he shouldn't eat of unclean food. And the voice and the vision instructs him, rebukes him, says what God has made clean, do not call common, do not call unclean. There's a symbolism there. God, in the Old Testament, had not just randomly decided, you know what, it would be super awesome for people to be able to eat bacon, but they would enjoy that too much. So I'm going to make a law that says that's unclean, and I'm not going to let them do it, you know, something like that. And arbitrarily, he came up with these these purity rules. But there was a purpose behind this. God is demonstrating the importance of his people maintaining their Purity, their separation from what is unclean. Like there was a reason why people had to observe those things. The importance was not in the outward ritual. The importance is in what it signified. The necessity for cleanness. But now Christ has come and a new lesson is being taught, a greater lesson. Which is Christ's power to make clean what is unclean. That Christ can take what is unclean and make it pure. Christ does the impossible in making the unclean clean. And that reality, you can imagine on a daily basis how hard it would have been for, for men like Peter and men like Paul, who had observed these ritual codes their whole lives, who had measured their righteousness according to these codes to suddenly violate them, you can imagine it, it must have felt weird, like to suddenly start eating what you had never been allowed to eat before, to wear what you couldn 't have worn before. This freedom probably felt like too much freedom like 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 just a crazy amount of freedom it 's hard for us to relate sometimes for most of us to relate, some of us not so much, some of you have backgrounds. Uh, in the church and elsewhere that were, let's say, a little more on the fundamentalist end of the spectrum, where things were forbidden by the church that were not forbidden by God. And so you know what it's like to suddenly have the freedom to do things that you were raised to believe were wrong. There's a whole branch of my family that was part of a, a sect of the Christian church that believed that it was sinful to wear jewelry, Whatever husbands came up with this, these guys were brilliant, right? I mean, they got themselves off the hook by teaching this. And so, and this branch of my family, like no one wore jewelry. Uh, The people were married, but they didn't wear wedding rings on their fingers because that was sinful. It just seemed so extreme. And here's the interesting thing. The leaders of that sect at a certain point decided, you know what? Actually, it's totally fine. To wear jewelry, and they, they changed the, the rules. And so I actually remember when all of my cousins went out and bought wedding rings long after they were married, and they were all very excited, uh, the wives more than the husbands, to be able to buy jewelry. And, and now uh, these are some of the most bedecked in jewelry people you will ever meet because of that newfound freedom. But you, you get a sense of it, right? Something has changed Christ has brought a new level of freedom. He's he's taken what was forbidden and made it clean. And and that freedom can be hard to to wrap your mind about. It can be a bit of a a struggle to understand how this is possible. And this is one of the the, the, the tensions that you see playing out in the New Testament. There's another one that's related to this. The second thing, it's, it's the inclusion of the Gentiles. The Messiah has come. But the gospel is not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And as that reality becomes clearer, it brings with it some complications. As Gentiles begin to convert and become part of the church, the the whole question becomes, well, how Jewish do these people need to be now? Do they all need to go get circumcised, for example? Like how how much of of the, the, the... ceremonial code will they be required to maintain? The Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 is revolving around that question. What is the status of Gentiles in the church? How do we gather them into this church appropriately? What is required of them and what is not? That's the big question. There's also the problem for Jews who've been raised to believe that the Gentiles are the other. They are the non-chosen. And they're not meant to be, we're not meant to socialize with them. We can't eat and drink with these people. And now they're part of our church, which makes like church socials awkward, right? Because we're all meant to be fellowshipping together. And if you're far enough away from Jerusalem, that's cool. Peter has no problem with that until some people from Jerusalem show up. And then Peter becomes self-conscious despite the vision, despite the fact that he was present. When the Holy Spirit descended on Gentiles in the house of Cornelius in Acts 10, Peter separates himself from those Gentile believers, and and Paul, as we learn in Galatians, has to rebuke him for it. This was tough. It was tough for them to deal with these changes that were taking place, to understand what the church was meant to be. Because in some ways, it was what they had grown up with. But in other ways, it had changed. It had opened up. Radically, and so you see in the course of new, the new testament this this working out of what that means, what these changes intend now in Romans nine through eleven we're actually coming face to face with a third struggle that's the status of Jews who have rejected the messiah there's the problem of what to do with the Gentiles who are part of This church, but there's also the question of how to think about, how to relate to those who are Israelites, but have rejected the Messiah of Israel. The Apostle Paul, he's the Apostle to the Gentiles, but like Jesus, he's as Jewish Jewish as you could be. He describes himself in Philippians 3 as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And so this matters to him how to think about his kinsmen according to the flesh, what it means that they do not share his faith in the Messiah. So in Romans 9, verses 1 through 5, we're going to learn about the Jewishness of the Messiah, and also the tragic rejection of the Messiah, and then finally, the wish for the salvation of others. We're going to do this backwards. We're going to approach the points Not the way Paul does, but we're going to start where Paul ends, with the idea of the Jewishness of the Messiah. The Messiah belongs to Israel. In verses 4 and 5, Paul says, "...they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ." who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You might think of it this way. So as we progress through chapter 9, we're going to get into some theology of election. We're going to get into some questions about what it means to be chosen by God. But before we get to the theology, here we're getting the, the heart that these questions flow out of. The, the, the grief, honestly. Honestly that these questions flow from. He's giving us a, a window into his heart. The Messiah belongs to Israel. The Christ, the Messiah, was promised to Israel and belongs to Israel. But Israel, at least in part, is rejecting the Messiah. As Paul looks around at what's happening, what he sees is a flourishing of the gospel among the Gentiles. And he also sees a lot of Jews rejecting the Messiah. And this raises a concern. It raises a fear. Paul's mission is to the Gentiles. But he grieves the unbelief of his fellow Jews so much that he says he would trade places with them if he could. That he would become accursed if he could. That he would sacrifice his own faith so that they might have it. Paul insists on the Jewishness of Jesus. It's not just that Jesus, like Paul, was a Jew, but that he belonged to the Jews. He belonged to Israel in a special sense. And he gives us a list of things here. Adoption. Adoption, which we looked at already, the spirit of adoption. Here he talks about adoption. This is the idea of God choosing a people and making them his children. Like this is what he does in the Old Testament. The people of Israel are God's chosen race, adopted by God to be his particular people. The adoption, the glory. It was the Jewish temple where the glory of God descended, where the presence of God on earth was represented. That glory signified that he was living, dwelling with his people. The covenants, the promises that they inherited were promises that were made to their forefather, Abraham. Their forefather in the flesh, Abraham. They were inheritors of the covenant promise that was made and passed down through that line. God's holiness had been revealed to them through the law that was given through Moses. Another forefather according to the flesh. The worship, that characterized, their nation, that worship was instituted by God. He had ordained it. He had commanded it. He had organized it. He had told them how to glorify him. And it belonged to them. All of the promises That accompanied his covenants, the promises of blessing, small and great, all of those promises were promised to Israel. To them belong the patriarchs. God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the patriarchs of the Hebrew race. The patriarchs belong to them, Paul says. And it is from their line, from their ethnic line, that Christ, the Messiah, has come, that the Savior of the world has come. And note here, too, in passing, the way that Paul describes Christ, Christ, who is God overall, blessed forever, amen. So you get one of those little interjections of worship, as Paul mentions Christ, Christ who he worships here as God over all. Do you have any questions about whether the Apostle Paul regards Christ as divine? Clearly, he does. There's a theological insight that you can draw from what Paul is saying here, which is this, that, that Jesus Christ is the Jewish Messiah, that his messianic work cannot be understood outside the context of that Old Testament background. If you say to yourself, I'm a New Testament Christian, and the Old Testament has nothing to do with me, what you're saying is actually nonsensical. Because the work of Christ depends upon, to, to understand that work, it rests upon a foundation that is laid in the Old Testament all of scripture is necessary in order to understand it that's the theological insight but running deeper there's there's a heart insight that paul is pointing to here when he's enumerating all of this the the, the possessions the belongingness that, that that jesus that the messiah belongs to israel belongs to his kinsmen according to the flesh and that that heart Impulse is is a question. It's an exclamation. We of all people should welcome him. He's ours. If the gospel is for the world, so be it. But we of all people should cherish him. We of all people should welcome him and embrace him. That's the mystery. That's the tragedy that that reality is not the case. Paul's grief is heightened by the fact that that the Jews of all people should have received the Messiah. But of course, Paul too had rejected him. Paul too, before he was Paul, when his name was Saul, had not only rejected the Messiah, but had persecuted his followers, had actively persecuted the church. If there was anyone who you would have written off and said there is no hope of salvation for that guy it would have been Saul the murderer of the faithful but Saul became Paul he came to faith and he recognized that he had come to faith as a result of this mystery of election of chosenness if you look at galatians chapter 1 verses 13 through 16 he lays this out It says, you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But... When he, who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, he went on and believed. So he recognizes in himself the fact that had it not been for the grace of God, he too would be in the same boat. So he's not looking at his kinsmen according to flesh in in a proud way and saying, well, I chose rightly and they didn't. He recognizes that if not for the grace of God, he would be in the same position. And it grieves him, it breaks his heart that they find themselves where they are, that they have rejected the Messiah of Israel. So on the one hand, Paul recognizes that it's only because of God that he believes. Yet on the other hand, he grieves for those who do not believe. And those two things do not contradict one another. They go together in the heart of Paul. He looked around and he saw that Israel was rejecting the Messiah. But in what sense was Israel rejecting the Messiah? John, in his prologue, says it. We looked at this last week briefly. In John chapter 1, verse 11, John writes, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But this idea that Israel had rejected its Messiah needs some explaining, because many Jews did not reject him. Obviously, Paul, for example, is a Jew. Jesus himself is a Jew. All of the apostles are Jews. The early church is Jewish. The, the church in the book of Acts is, That is growing. The church from Pentecost, the church through the first nine chapters of Acts, is a Jewish church. None of those Jews rejected their Messiah. They embraced him and they recognized him as the one who was promised. So, in what sense had Israel rejected the Messiah? Because clearly there were Jews who received him as the Messiah. All of these principal players in the history of the church were Jews. The early church was a Jewish church. It's only later that it becomes more ethnically diverse. But the church was Jewish because individual Jews came to faith, not the nation as a whole. And that's kind of the difference. But in the Old Testament, election is understood individually, but also nationally. Like we are chosen people as individuals but we together are the chosen nation we are God's nation God's people and that sense of the corporate chosenness loomed at least as large as the individual chosenness so what Paul sees happening in the growth of the church is that while individual Jews have received the messiah the nation as a whole was rejecting him in the sense that, that where the disciples had imagined that the Messiah would come and he would be like the physical king of a reborn physical kingdom of Israel, a new physical ethnic nation of Israel, that's not what was happening. Instead, what was being built, as Christ had taught, was a spiritual kingdom, and that was a kingdom that drew not only Jews, but also Gentiles, as was being revealed. And so one of the struggles then is to understand this new sense of chosenness, that it's no longer ethnic, that it's no longer national, that God is taking these very different and very diverse individuals and making all of that diversity into a very unlikely unity in the body of Christ. That's the struggle. How to think about that. Now that election is revealed to be broader than was previously supposed, the question is how to think about people who are Israelites, who are Jewish, but who do not receive the Jewish Messiah. Here's something we can learn from Paul's reaction um, here's how Paul doesn't react to this phenomena. Paul does not say, oh well, I guess they weren't elect. Oh well, I guess they weren't chosen. No big deal. That is not the way that Paul reacts to this reality. and It is not the way that we ought to react either. Paul believes in election. He believes in that chosenness. He teaches that chosenness, but he does not use it as an excuse for indifference to the people who surround him who have rejected the Messiah. He doesn't treat their unbelief as just, "case Sarah Sarah, what will be will be. That is not the way he views it. Instead, he grieves it. He agonizes over it. It breaks his heart. You look in the Old Testament, you'll see there are different ways of reacting to the unbelief of the others. Jonah exemplifies one way. Prophet Jonah, a reluctant missionary, sent to preach repentance to the Ninevites who don't deserve it. They are outside God's plan. They are not God's chosen people. When a prophet of Israel is raised up and he's sent to a foreign land, that God should be punishing and he's told to offer them repentance, he doesn't want to do it. Eventually, God compels him to do it, but he's still not happy about it. And he goes and he preaches repentance, hoping that they won't listen. And when they do, he's bitter about it. And in that way, Jonah is like a lot of us, who have this idea of who grace is for and who it's not for, who should receive judgment, and who should receive mercy. And if we see God being merciful to the people who should get judgment, we're not happy with that at all. That's Jonah's response. But it's not Paul's response. Paul follows Abraham, who when confronted with the judgment of Sodom, pleaded with God on behalf of that reprobate city. He begged God, he negotiated with God for the salvation of people who were unworthy. That's the example that Paul follows. He longs for their salvation and their rejection of their Messiah breaks his heart. I am speaking the truth in Christ, he writes. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Which is a funny way to preface any statement. Usually when when people say something like, hey, listen, I'm being honest here, you can mentally do the math and say, okay, they're about to lie. Because people don't assure you that they're not lying unless they're about to deceive you, right? Because we assume everyone's going to be honest unless they make a point of saying, you can trust me on this. I'm not lying this time. It's like the preacher who's about to tell the story and says, no, this one's real. This is not a sermon illustration. I'm not preaching, I'm telling the truth. You're like, yeah, it shouldn't be be different. It should always be the same, right? So why does he have to say this? Why is he insisting? I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness with the Holy Spirit because he's about to say something that is so incredible that you're likely to think he doesn't mean it. He's going to say something that is so extraordinary that that if he doesn't preface it this way, you're going to think this is not sincere, that it's just a posture or a pose. But he wants you to understand, I intend this literally. This is true. What I'm about to say to you is absolutely true. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So you see here Paul's grief for their unbelief and also Paul's desire for their reconciliation to God. He has great sorrow, unceasing anguish. He doesn't resign himself to their unbelief. He doesn't say, well, God will save whoever he wants and there's nothing I can do about it. The same apostle who teaches us the doctrine of election, demonstrates a profound burden for lost souls. If you're one of those people who worries that those two things are incompatible, that you can't believe in election and predestination, and also have a burden to see the lost reconciled to God, Paul is showing you these things go together. Because the same apostle who teaches you the one demonstrates the other. These things go together. Look, nobody likes conflict. Most of us don't like conflict. We don't like to get into arguments all the time. We want to live and let live. Christians these days, we're so concerned about being judged for our Christianity in the public square, people um, disapproving of us and that sort of thing, that, that we would be satisfied with a seat at the table. It would be enough if people could just accept, okay, you're different, you're a Christian, that's fine. You believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe. just live and let live. We think, man, if we could get that, that would be enough. You believe what you want to believe and let me believe what I want to believe. That kind of live and let live, I mean, it's sound up to a point. But shouldn't we, like Paul, burn with sorrow and anguish that anyone rejects the Messiah? Shouldn't there be grief and anguish on our part, at the thought of anyone who refuses to be reconciled to the God who made them? I think the answer is yes. Paul's grief leads him to desire peace, reconciliation, reconciliation. Between those who have rejected Christ and Christ. And they hadn't just rejected Christ, they'd rejected Paul, they'd stoned him, they'd persecuted him, they'd done all sorts of things to ostracize him. But his response wasn't, I hope they get what's coming to them for what they've done to me. He longed for their salvation. And he said, I would sacrifice myself for them if such a thing were possible. John chapter 15, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then John in his first epistle says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. In saying what he says here, Paul is just living these words. Paul is recognizing Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, laid down his life for me and has called me to lay down my life for others. And so he does. And so he grieves their lostness. And he calls us to live those words as well. He teaches us how we should regard those outside the church, how we should think of those who have rejected Christ, those who have scoffed at him, those who have turned their back on him, have walked away from the faith, or never embraced it in the first place. How should we feel and think about such people? The answer is self-sacrificially. You can see from this That the long history of anti Semitism amongst so called Christians is a sinful atrocity. The Apostle Paul does not look at at the idea that the nation of Israel had rejected the Messiah and, and say to himself, therefore, we should persecute them, we should show them. It's the opposite. He longs to be able to give himself so that they might know Christ. I can't think of a clearer repudiation of that attitude than the one that Paul gives. The biases that we see, the, the, the worries, if you read the news today, of growing anti-Semitism on the left and on the right, this is as far as you can get from the spirit of Paul's words given to us here. You can also see, too, what our attitude ought to be towards all those who have refused to be reconciled to God. We should not be content to live and let live. They had their chance. Oh, well, I guess it wasn't meant to be. No, that's not what Paul thinks. It's not what he feels, and we shouldn't either. We should not be indifferent. You've made your bed, now lie in it. No, instead we should earnestly long for their reconciliation as we do for our own. We should write off no one. We should long for the salvation of all. We should long to see the entire human race reconciled to the God who made us. And not just the race, but the individual's who make it up. We should long for their salvation. We should long especially for our brothers and sisters in the flesh. Our brothers and sisters in the flesh who do not believe, we should long for their salvation. Long to see our brothers and sisters in the flesh become our brothers and sisters in the spirit as well. That's what Paul teaches us. And as we dig deeper into the mysteries of chosenness as we study this chapter and the next two, let us never forget the heart that drives everything that follows. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org.